We'll open your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to finish our fifth week in the first two verses. I will give you every assurance that we're going to speed up here in this chapter uh, after this, but this is just too great a passage, too insightful, too condensed amount of truth for us to hurry past. Romans 12 Let me read those first two verses just to set them in our hearts before we dive in. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living And holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. You will prove that it is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to begin our study this morning by reading to you a paragraph from a book and ask you if these are thoughts with which you can relate, okay? Book reads, you've been told a thousand times to read your Bible, but it sits on the nightstand with some of the pages still stuck together. You've been convinced a thousand times more when you've been convicted a thousand times more, rather, when you've been told to pray, but you never quite find the time and the place. You have a stack of Christian books that have been recommended. You've started some of them, but finished very few. You've begun to read your Bible through, only to bail out when you get to the numbers in numbers. How many times have you pillowed your head with great intentions of getting up early to spend time with God? And how many times have you hit the snooze button? You believe the gospel of Jesus is true. You understand the realities of heaven and hell. But when it comes to witnessing, you feel a whole lot more like the cowardly lion of the Wizard of Oz than the Jim Elliot of missionary lore. You know you should be giving money to the church, but you're convinced that once this bill is paid, you'll start giving. Once you get that something you've really wanted, then you'll be in a position to sacrifice. You've spent hours in church, listened to countless sermons, compiled enough notes to sink a battleship. You've had enough good intentions to compete with Mother Teresa and enough failures to compete with Peter's denials and Thomas's doubts. You've even resorted to making deals with God. Still, though, something feels woefully missing. There's a shadow, a pall over your very, very normal 
Christian life. Those words are from a book called Uneclipsing the Sun. It's really bad when you start quoting yourself, okay? But I was drawn back to that paragraph because it reflected so many times when I've thought about my faith myself. Growing in godliness is hard. Growing in Christ is difficult. It's hard work. But it's worth it. One of the joys that I have of being a pastor and is I get to talk to people all the time about their faith. I get to ask questions and hear answers. I get to um, answer questions and talk about what's going on in people's lives. I love that part of, of the ministry that God has given me, but sometimes it's alarming. There's a conversation that I've had over and over, more times than I can count, with more people than I can list. And here's how the conversation goes in one realm or one, one, uh, one phrasing of it or another, okay? Rick, Christianity, it just doesn't work for me. Or maybe this. The Bible just doesn't have an effect on me. I've read it and nothing happens. Or maybe this. No matter how hard I try, I cannot stop committing this sin. Or perhaps this, what's wrong with me? Why am I so different from everyone else who tries Christianity and it works for them? But when I do the things that I'm told to do, it just doesn't, doesn't pan out. It doesn't work for me. I don't feel any different. I'm, I'm no different from my effort. Well, if you can relate to any of that, this passage before us is written for you. This is exactly what Paul has in mind. It's a dilemma that he intends to solve. Maybe a good way to summarize it are the words of Alfred Gibbs. You know, we say this over and over, that books don't change your life. Um, paragraphs do, sometimes sentences. And, and it's not always the same paragraph or sentence for everybody, which means you've got to read the whole book to see what the Lord has for you in that, right? In his book on pastoral ministry, Alfred Gibbs, he has this one phrase. It used to be on our website, actually, Maybe we'll cycle it back through there. He writes this. He says, and I'll say it a couple times. Unless there is within us that which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. Now think it through. Let me say it again. Alfred Gibbs, he says, unless there is within us that which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. That's a good summary of what Paul is talking about here in these opening two verses of Romans chapter 12. Unless there is within you an understanding of the gospel, that which is above us, what God has done for us in Christ, if there is not that, you will certainly yield to the world that is around you. Christianity changes a person. Christ changes a person. The gospel changes a person. It reorients values. It changes our worldview. It changes our desires and our wants. Everything, everything changes in how we think when you come into the saving knowledge of Christ and what he's done for us in the gospel. Everything changes. 
Paul tells the Corinthians, you're actually a new creature. Old things pass away and new things come. Everything changes. Jesus is too amazing and far too powerful to invade a person's life without, without there being a significant and a radical change in behavior and thoughts and change in blessing and enjoyment. The change is radical, the change is dramatic, and the change is unmistakably noticeable. Now, we've been looking at these verses for a few weeks. Actually, this is verse, verse, this is week five of looking at these two verses. And the theme we've come up with is so obvious. Christianity is radical. It, it, it is a radical commitment. And we've broken it down into four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. Four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. Notice that the words radical and the words authentic are synonymous. To live a radical life is truly authentic biblically. And to live an authentic, genuine Christian life is to be radical. Different than you were before you came to meet the Savior. Christianity then is a radical change in a person's life. Now, Paul breaks this down into four very discernible parts, and we've broken those down and called those four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. The first one is in verse 1, the first part. It's a doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. A doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. If you're going to have radical commitment to Christ, you have to ask the question, answer the question, why? Why should I do this? Why should I give my all for a man who I didn't see, a, 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 a savior who's spoken of in a book that's thousands of years old. Why should I do this? Paul motivates us by saying, therefore, and you've got to stop right there, therefore means after I've told you the gospel for 11 chapters, explained to you that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's only what he's done for you, what you believe about him, not what you do even for him because of his work and his life and death and his resurrection. Therefore, I parakaleo, I come alongside you. It's the same word that, that's used for the, for the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. I come alongside you. I urge you, brethren, my spiritual siblings. Now, this is amazing. By the mercies of God, I'm going to motivate you doctrinally by the mercies of God. Let me say it for about the fourth week in a row. I'm so surprised that he doesn't say, I motivate you, I urge you by the grace of God. Because he's spoken so much about grace for 11 chapters. Grace is what God gives us. Mercy is what he doesn't give us. Grace is he gives us his blessings. Mercy is he doesn't give us his wrath. And he looks at this as after summarizing all the gospel and he says, the fact that God has not given me hell, the fact that God has not communicated and commuted the hell sentence of eternity apart from God to you, this mercy has been demonstrated. I want to urge you and motivate you by the absence of hell and the presence of God's grace in heaven to have doctrinal reasons, doctrinal reasons for living I urge you by the mercies of God. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Is there a better benefit than the believer doesn't go to hell forever, but goes to heaven with Christ for eternity? He says, I want to urge you by the doctrine. 
And I want to urge you in two categories, in your body and your mind, as we'll see. There's doctrinal reasons and motivations for living a radical Christian life. And if you're, if you're not motivated to live a radical, authentic Christian life, it's probably because something's broken in your theological understanding. Insufficient, incomplete. Secondly, he told us that there's an intentional sacrifice for such radical commitment. Not only a doctrinal motivation for radical commitment, number two, an intentional sacrifice for radical commitment. He says in verse, in verse one in the, in the middle there, I want to urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. I want you, listen, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is unique because this is the Old Testament sacrificial language. Sacrifices were offered and they were dead and, and eaten and consumed and burned up. They were gone. <laughs> this is a different kind of sacrifice. I want you to present your bodies to God as a sacrifice that's living, it, it doesn't die, and it's holy. It's committed to God. Now, don't miss the insight here that what you do in your bodies, in your corporeal existence, is under your control if the Spirit of God has invaded your life. There's an option. When he says, present your bodies, that has to be a possibility which means that we're not controlled by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. We, as believers, with the Spirit of God, Romans 8 tells us we have, by adoption by His Spirit, the power He's given us in Romans 6, He's given us the ability to make decisions, to use our bodies, not for sinful lusts, but for God's glory. Let's go back to our opening so when you come to the point, you say, this doesn't work. I can't do this. This doesn't work for me. You're right. Only God can do it with cooperation of your own effort through you. So is God in play when we make these decisions? And we remember that Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? When you come to faith in Christ, he invades you, takes up residence with you is always with you in a permanent and an abiding way. He says, and you are not your own. Think about that. Your body is not. How do we know your body is not your own? Because he says in the next verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Your, your body is the, is the glove in which your soul touches the world. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Present your body a holy and a living sacrifice. That's a possibility to make decisions that you are living from your mind out to work out in your body different affections than your normal inclinations would, would lean. It means we control our tongues and what we say. It means we control our eyes and what they see and our feet and where they go, our hands and what they touch. He says, this is your it's a spiritual service of worship. Better, your reasoned, your reasonable service of worship. This is what makes sense for you to worship is to live in your bodies in an acceptable way. 
It's intentionally sacrificing the lusts of the flesh for the glories of God. Thirdly, we looked at, still reviewing, a rational transformation for radical commitment. A rational, a reasoned transformation for radical commitment. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Two verbs here. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Both of these in the English and the Greek are what we call passive verbs. It's, in other words, you're letting something happen to you. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world literally squeeze you into its mold. But instead, be transformed. Don't let the world conform to you. Let God transform you, change you. It's the word metamorphosis, from which we get that word metamorphosis in the English, from a tadpole to a frog, from a, a, a caterpillar to a butterfly, radically transformed, changed. Same person, radically different. By the renewing of your mind. There is such a world of insight here. Paul says you will be transformed when you come into the kingdom and transformed in a sanctified sense where you're living for the glory of God and away from your old leanings. You, you'll be transformed, you'll be changed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Now, interestingly here is he doesn't tell us how to renew our minds. We're, we're not told. But we have other books. And Paul did explain this out. I want to stitch some things together for you if, if I can. How do you renew your mind? Well, you first are not conformed to the world. Do not love the world, John says in John 2. Don't love the world of things that are in the world. You have to hate the love that your soul has for worldly affections. But even more so, you have to use your mind to think differently. Your mind is the most powerful thing you possess. What you think, how you think, what you daydream about, how you imagine, what you fill your mind with, it defines you. Paul does not provide an explanation here in Romans for how we are to renew our minds, but he does give insight to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, verse 21, he says, if indeed you have heard him, because you've, been, you've learned Christ in a different way than you learned your old ways, if you've heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, what we're transformed from, you may lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. There's an insight into the old way of thinking, the lusts of deceit. Said another way, the lust that your natural mind and body have, the lust that you're born with are liars. Those desires, they're liars. They will tell you and promise you you'll find satisfaction, peace, hope, comfort, joy, meaning, purpose. And you don't. Oh, oh you do in the temporary, but it doesn't last. It's what we learn in Ecclesiastes, right? Juicy fruit tastes great for a few minutes and then it turns foul after you keep chewing it. You're laying aside the old self which has been lying to you. 
promising you things that can't deliver, the lust of deceit. And listen, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, I want you to link that with what Paul told the Corinthians. Let's stitch this together. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled faces, you take the veil off so you can see, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That's what we see when God takes the, the scales off our eyes. The glory of the Lord being, here's our same word, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, As from the Lord the Spirit, he's saying you're growing because God is lifting the veil and you're seeing, get get this, not everything that you're to do, you're seeing the glory of Christ. Then in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, that's that veil that we can't see Christ, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. In other words, your mind is renewed because you think different thoughts about Jesus. First of all, you believe he's alive. We believe in the resurrection, don't we? Don't we? Isn't he alive? And if he is alive, it changes everything because he's alive from a cruel cross on which he hung to give his life as a ransom for those who believe as a sacrifice that pleased God and a punishment for sin because the wages of sin is death. Our minds are transformed because we think about Jesus differently. That shouldn't surprise us. In the opening verses of Romans, he says in verse 1, the gospel of God in verse 3 concerns his son. In other words... The gospel, in the gospel, God takes away the veil from our minds to see the glory of Christ in the Bible. Now, all that is reviewed so we can get to number four. Four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. A doctrinal motivation, an intentional sacrifice, a rational transformation for radical commitment, and number four, an acceptable outcome for radical commitment. This is where it gets really practical. and might actually surprise you an acceptable outcome for radical commitment. Look at the last phrase in verse 4. So that, and any time the Bible says so that, you should mark that, circle that, underline that. He gave you a so what? He's told us all this so that, here's the practical application, so that you may approve or prove (coughs) what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and complete or perfect. Now we come to the subject of God's will. And let me just tell you, I I found few things in Christianity more confusing to more people than what God's will is. Like the young man who went up to a girl in the college department and said, I'm convinced that God's will is for us to date. And she responded, I'm convinced that God's will is for us not to date. Well, who's right and who's wrong? What is God's will? How do you determine God's will? What is God's will? Now, God's will is, is, is really framed and categorized into two big dimensions. There's God's moral will and God's wise will. Let me explain what I mean. God's moral will is very clear, and that's what we're going to come back to here in this verse. His moral will is do not steal, do not commit adultery. Pretty straightforward, right? 
do this, don't do that. His moral will, very clear. His wisdom will, though, is not always as clear. Who do I marry? Who do I date? Which job do I take? Which car do I buy? Do I get the, you know, the, the, the pink Cadillac or the blue Hyundai? Do I get the green Jeep or the, uh, the, the exploding Pinto? What, what do I get? What do I want? Now, does God have a will for decisions in your life that are not addressed specifically in the pages of Scripture? For example, I, I can tell you... I. I believe God's will for my life was to marry Kim Harris. And I knew that after she said, I do, and I said, I do. That was God's will. But before that, I mean, how do you know that? You, you, there, there's wisdom of the scriptures. There's counsel of others that help you make those decisions. And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong in that. And when you're not right, you call an audible and make a, sec- a second better decision, right? Not on who you marry, but which car you buy or which job you take or where you live. This passage is going to inform us that God's will is not so much something you find, it's something you do. Let's look at this specifically. So that you may prove what the will of God is. Paul talks so much about God's will uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Ephesians 1, 1, Colossians 1, 1, 2 Timothy 1, 1, he says that he's an apostle by God's will. He also says in Romans 1, 10, Romans 15, 32, that he's only able to fulfill his ministry by God's will. He often points to specific actions of Christians that are to be done according to the will of God, like generous giving, 2 Corinthians 8, 5, is to be done according to the will of God. Obedience of slaves to masters, in other words, employees to employers, is to be done according to God's will in Ephesians 6, 6. The avoidance of sexual immorality is God's will, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And the giving of thanks to God in everything, all circumstances, is said to be God's will in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. A lot said about God's will. This is different, though. Romans 12, 2 is fundamentally different than all of these other expressions about God's will. We have to dive into it a little deeper because he talks of proving God's will, literally approving God's will. The New American Standard says that you may prove what the will of God is. The Greek word for prove is, uh, uh, is, it's used in a lot of ways and in a lot of places. Um, it basically means to put to the test for the purpose of approving. Dakimadzo. Test it. Put it to the test for the purpose of approving and find that the thing you tested meets the specifications laid down for its approval. You put God's will to the test and see if it proves itself worthy. This is incredible. He says, you renew your mind, you present your body, you're motivated by, by the right doctrine so that you can actually test and prove and ultimately approve what God's will is and if it's worth it. 
Most of the time we look at God's will as something given to us. Here it's something the believer actually sits in evaluation over. Now think about it. Paul's just laid out how a believer's mind is to be transformed, to be renewed, not being conformed to the world. As a result, as a Christian, you can put God's will and God's desires for you, God's longings for you, his mandates for you to the test. It almost seems inverted. It almost seems blasphemous. How can I test God's will? He tells us to. And you will find, if you test it with the appropriate uh, criteria, that it passes every test and his ways are truly best. So what does will mean? God's, God's will. It's, you have a will to do something, a will to want something. It's what God wants now look at the verse, at the, how it ends. Let's move backwards a little bit in this, this, this phrase. He says, then you will be able to test or approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. That which is good, that which is pleasing, that which is perfect. Now, to understand this, these three words, good, acceptable, and perfect, we have to go back to 10th grade grammar. Mrs. Copeland, I remember her writing these things on, on the board. But thank God for Mrs. Copeland. I, I remember when I was taking uh, uh, Greek and Hebrew in seminary, I, I wrote her a letter and thanked her for teaching me English grammar because it, without English grammar, it would have been almost impossible to learn another language. She was such a good teacher. I thank God for, for, for Mrs. Copeland. If you haven't gotten to the 10th grade yet, yeah, this is a preview of things to come. Okay, you get to look forward to this. Two words, predicate adjectives and predicate nominatives. Remember those? How many of you know the difference between a predicate adjective and a predicate nominative? Okay, let's go back to 10th grade. A predicate adjective is a description. A predicate is something that comes after the verb, um, uh, and, and it describes something. My Bible is a black leather-bound Bible. I can say... My Bible is black. It's an adjective. The predicate is an adjective. It actually describes what the subject is. It's black. A predicate nominative does something way more. It actually gives a description in other words. So if I was to say, Rick is a pastor... What's on both sides of those verbs are, are in the nominative position. They, they tell who I am, what I am. That's what's going on here. Paul is saying, in other words, God's will itself is what is good. It's not just a good will. God's will is what is good. God's will is what is pleasing or acceptable to him. And God's will is what is complete, teleos, perfect. Think of it like this. God is not saying... Paul is not saying, God's will is a good will. He's rather saying, God's will is what is good for you. Here's how it works. As you grow in your faith, your mind is transformed by the truth about Jesus. Then you're made more like him because you start imitating him. And then you are actually able to approve and desire what God wants for your life and determine that it's the best. I 
a renewed mind will believe that God, what God wants for you is good for you. What God wants you is acceptable to him. That's our same word that we already found earlier in verse one. That God's word is that teleos complete. You'll be totally satisfied. It has, it has all you need. So what is God's will? Let's, let's kind of pull this all together. God's will is very simply what God wants and desires in the life of his children, right? It's what God wants in the life of his children. And what is that? Simply to believe the gospel and obey his word. God's will for you is to believe the gospel. God's will for you is to obey his word. Most of us think of God's will as something we find, look for. It's like an Easter egg hunt. God's will is not something you look for. It's something you do. It's not hard to figure out. But this runs in direct opposition to what we, how we're born and how we live and how we, we learn to live life with us at the center of our solar system. So when we come back and say, well, I, I'm not sure that Christianity works for me, God says, test it. Test what I desire for you. Because if you test it with a renewed mind, presenting your body as a sacrifice to Christ, you will find that it is good and acceptable and completely satisfying. In a famous sermon, A.W. Tozer said this. The sermon was titled, How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, we run everything in our lives. Think about that. We run everything in our lives. We run to work. We run like we are the boss. We run our households. We decide what it takes, to, uh, uh, takes place in our households. We decide where we're going to live. Some of you husbands try to run your wives. You tell them what to do and what not to do. You try to run your kids. You run your interests. But if the Spirit comes into your life, there is one thing you will be running no more. You will not be running your life. Why? Why does a Christian give up running his own life, using his own body, thinking his own thoughts? Why? Because you've approved God's will. In other words, the Christian understands that the way God wants our lives to be lived is better than what we desire in the way our lives are to be lived. Because our lives are full of the lusts of deceit, right? Paul seems to be saying here that the renewing of our mind by being exposed to God's word, embracing the teaching of God's word, thinking rightly about Jesus, that will enable a believer to test for themselves and approve what God expects of them. Let me say it another way. God understands that his will is so good for you that he asks you to put it to the test and to see if it works. And if it's not working, it's not because there's a problem with his will, it's the problem in the application and submission to it. That's the problem. God doesn't give defective faith. God doesn't grant insufficient salvation. 
Don't you love the invitation in Psalm 34, verse 8? Oh, taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. This sounds odd, but this passage actually is an echo of God through Paul saying, test me. Test my will. You think your way is better than my way? Test me. Test being holy and pure and above approach. Test being holy with your girlfriend. Test being a faithful leader to your wives. Test trusting God with giving your resources to him and not your wanton pleasures. Test to see if biting your hole in your tongue is better than saying what will make you feel so good. Test him. And he says, if you do, you'll find it's good. And it's acceptable. And it's complete. It's perfect. You'll prove the will, you'll approve the will of God. God's will, according to God's word, under the authority of Scripture itself, says that if you will honestly put your shoulders to the plow, understand who Christ is, and apply his principles for sanctification and holiness and living, you will find happiness and peace and satisfaction. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Motivated by the gospel, the mercies of God, presenting your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, avoiding being squeezed, squozen into the world's mold. Is it squeezed? You never went to 10th grade English, so how can I ask you that? (laughs) Squeezed into the world's mold. Renewing your mind. If you do that, you... (laughs) You'll be able to look at God's will revealed in his word and say, I know that that's true. I know it's best. I know it's good for me. It may feel rotten in categories of this life, but I ultimately know that it's good. It's good for those who trust in the Lord. You'll understand that all things work together for good. To those who know God's will, who trust God's will, who who see God's providence as a gift, So back to the beginning. When you ever, if you ever, come to that place where you just say, this isn't working for me. You don't have the whole gospel. You don't see Jesus rightly. You've probably created a gospel, a construct, a a way of salvation in your mind that seems right to you but is utterly false according to God's word. The will of God for you is to believe the gospel and to obey God's word. And if you do, you're going to find out it's good. God accepts it. And it's all complete, satisfying in your life. You can't do that unless Jesus is your Lord what do we keep saying? He is Lord of all, or he is not Lord what? At all. Radical, authentic Christian living <laughs> allows you to step back and say, this is what God said, and I actually approve it. 
because it works. And he promises that it works. Now, what's exciting is after this, he's going to say that exhibits itself first in your humility. The next verse, two verses, thinking rightly about yourself and others, which will then express itself into the spiritual gifts and how you serve the body, which in 13 will express itself in how you live in the world. It is genius of the Holy Spirit to lay it out in this, this pattern. Completely sufficient. Oh, there's more to say, but we got to pray. Oh, Father, so much in this passage. Your will is so simple, it's to do what you desire. Your will is so perfect, it's to give us what we, in our hearts, truly desire. I pray for those who have tasted and you've not seemed good, who have tried and it hasn't seemed to work. Lord, correct their thinking Give them gospel truth that's good and acceptable and complete and perfect. Because Jesus is enough and he is far too wonderful and far too powerful to invade and save a person's life without there being a radical transformation and a wholly satisfying look at his grace and glory. We're thankful for access to you in him. Amen.